HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. This week on Meet and 3, we head into the second part of our mini-series on global trade, where we talk about all things sweet, from chocolate and sugarcane to the cultural festival that accompanied the growth of the date industry in the U.S., They're using this romance and fantasy to say, dates are exotic and you should consume them. I like to think of the food that we eat as archaeological artifacts, in part because the history of humanity is in the stands in your produce market. It's not like other foods. We have very, like, personal feelings about chocolate. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, me, Zara Tangora, and my adorable, wonderful, lovely mother, Bobby Conforto, who is not with us for the intro, but as always with us in spirit. Um, Today, we are welcoming Monica O'Connell, an amazing guest. We had such a beautiful talk with Monica. It was, I, as with all of our guests, um, I feel like I always say this and it's true, And it was definitely true with Monica. I feel like we could have talked to her for hours and hours. Um, Monica is a cake designer, baker, writer, and a former French horn player. And she also holds a PhD in ethnomusicology. Um, We just had an incredible conversation about a variety of, you know, different really intense loss experiences and grief experiences that Monica has had over the past year. Um she had a way of putting things that was so touching and so beautiful. It definitely brought us to tears at a few points to, uh, during the episode. Um, yeah, we we're so excited about this talk and Monica's cakes are gorgeous. Her business is called Curtis and Cake and please check it out. We're going to put a link to it in our Instagram. Um, yeah, she's an incredible human, dynamic and lovely and wise and the talk was just so great. Can't wait for you guys to listen to it. Um, and just hoping that everyone's okay out there in the kind of thick of winter. Um, obviously, there's so much happening in this country and world, and it's a tough time. And, you know, there are little kind of nuggets of joy out there. And, you know, for Bobby and I, I know doing this show is definitely one of them. And hopefully hearing these stories and getting to connect with people, knowing that, you know, people 
are dealing with a lot and going through a lot, you're not alone. And uh, also finding ways to be in their grief, to come out of their grief, to, you know, manage their grief. Um, You know, I just, I hope that these episodes are helping you guys. Um, They're definitely helping me. I can say that for sure. So sending a lot of love um, to all of you listeners. And thank you so much for your continued support of the show. Um, It's really wonderful to be able to do this. So please enjoy Monica O'Connell. We really did. And yeah, be good to yourselves and each other. And we will see you next week. Bye. Welcome to Processing. We're here today with Monica O'Connell. Monica, hello. Hello. Good morning. Hello. <laughs> Afternoon. Good morning. Hello. And you are joining us from Georgia. From Conyers, Georgia. So I'm, I'm in the deep wooded suburbs of Atlanta. Wow. Mm. Amazing. And you recently moved there from Wisconsin, right? Yes. Um, it was a whole thing to survive, but yeah, we, we made it. So we closed um, November 9th. Wow. Amazing. It's a homecoming. Good luck in your new home. Yeah. Thank you. So what's that been like? What's the kind of transition? Because, you know, I, Bobby and I are Long Islanders. We're very much like East Coasters. I've lived in the city for a long time in, Bro- in Brooklyn and in Manhattan. And I don't have a ton of experience with either the Midwest or the South. So could you just tell us a little bit about like, I guess, what's the, what is it like being, having transitioned from Wisconsin to Georgia? Well, um, it's been kind of like an exhale, to be honest. Um, there was so much that I loved and appreciated about being in, or being close to Madison. Uh, we lived in a small town called Fort Atkinson that was about 45 minutes south of Madison in Wisconsin. Um, and a lot of that was was food culture um, and, and the fact that you have four proper seasons um, and, and all of the really rich relationships with farmers and um, all the potential that that entails um, was coming alive in, in my life there. But the you know, the facts are the demographics are just really harsh for people of color and um, coming, coming home, coming to Atlanta and seeing every day my entire diaspora represented is, you know, it's pretty beautiful. I feel, um, I feel at home. That's great. That's great. That feeling of being at home is really priceless, isn't it? Like when you just feel like you belong and you're like the sense of relief when you set aside relief, it really, that's a a great visual to put, to put to that. It is. And I'm relieved that that's what I'm experiencing because I was nervous about coming back and, you know, you make all these stories about what that means, but. Yeah, yeah, I know. Good. Right. Like when those stories that we tell ourselves about what could happen and the potential like for, you know, disaster or bad things or good things, whatever the assumption is, is always it's like almost never like that in any. <laughs> right. I don't I don't know any time <laughs> in my life or what I've assumed will happen ever actually really happens. But. And, and yeah. yet we have to keep learning that lesson. Mm-hmm. I know it is one <laughs> lesson that never fully gets learned. It's very funny. Um, so what have you been cooking? What have you, you're a, a baker and you have a cake business and, but what have you been kind of making in your personal life? I mean, since you've, 
since you've moved? What are the kind of things you've got going on? Um, well, I don't, well, I won't say that I don't have the baking business anymore. I'll say it's in deep transition. Mm. Um, and what I've been baking and making, um, you know, around the holidays, of course, I was just going into complete insane overdrive um, <laughs> with the with the cookies and the rum cake um, Ooh, and all other kinds of things. But I guess what's been really nice about this moment is that I'm I'm not I don't have that public facing thing of having the business so I am able to just read cookbooks for pleasure again and and really follow other people's recipes and just kind of enjoy that and I had forgotten I don't know just how how enjoyable that is and how fun that is and you know it kind of lights me up so just been trying different things this my project this weekend is fried chicken Ooh, yum uh yeah I've made it maybe I can count on one hand how many times I've made that, and that's a whole thing. So, yeah, <laughs> do you do a butter tomorrow? Do you do sure. a buttermilk brine? I'm gonna do the buttermilk brine. I'm gonna get on that today, and um, yeah, hopefully not not burn the house down tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> I made fried chicken this weekend, and I also haven't made it that many times. Um, and I had like some dehydrated sour cream that I had made during quarantine when I was <laughs> trying to like really homestead, like hardcore. And I was like, I'll make my own sour cream powder. And so I was like, what is this shit in the back of my cabinet? And I grabbed it down and it was powdered sour cream. And I put it, I sprinkled it, I put it in the uh, flour batter. And then I also sprinkled it on top. It was quite good. I gotta say. Yummy. Yeah. But, uh, I also <laughs> like had it. amazing. It was delicious. It was really, really good. <laughs> It was really good. Um, yeah, you know, I understand when you were just talking about kind of being able to cook for pleasure again and like kind of unwinding. I had a restaurant for like seven years and it. I decided to close it for a variety of reasons, but mainly because it felt like really oppressive to my personhood. You know what I mean? I was just like suffocating with the amount of stress and pressure. And um, I had a, such a similar feeling when I closed. I was so sad to have lost the business, but like the the relief, the kind of sigh of relief to get to do normal things like read, like when you're saying reading a cookbook and like enjoying cooking for myself and stuff, like it really, that really resonates a lot with me. And also Bobby, you too. I mean, Bobby had a food business and closed it. How did you, did you have that feeling mom when you closed either of your businesses? Yeah, it's, you know, as a, a, a baker or a chef, you know, when you cook for yourself, it's just a different approach. It's, you know, I, I think when I first started cooking for myself again, I wanted to cook for 200 people instead of two, <laughs> you know, because I'm used to quantity. I yeah. still have problem with that. I still make big quantities rather than quantities for two. Totally. You know, I think what I'm kind of struck by is just the like, it's an interesting thing when you get to be in a profession where you actually do what you love. You know, I think that like, that's such a kind of common trope that we hear like, oh, do what you love. And like, a lot of people don't do what they love right? Like that's just work. That's kind of how, how work works for most of us. <laughs> and then when you do do something you love, it's very interesting because mixing your, you know, passion and work, because work is often grueling, it's an interesting kind of crossroads. Did you feel that in your business with, with uh, cakes that you, did you feel any of that kind of pressure mingling with your passion? Like oh how did gosh. you handle that? Yeah. <laughs> 
so much. I mean, yeah, I always say I, I loved, loved having this business, except for the business part. Um, <laughs> totally. Just, <laughs> and it's, you know, it's hard because it's it's such a sort of, it's such a private challenge. You can't, you know, people are always saying that to you. God, it must be so nice to sort of sit around and decorate cakes all day. Or it must be so nice. You know, like, what do you think I do? Um, but you can't, you know, can't get into that whole sort of deep bitch session that you maybe want to get into. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely felt that. Um, and it's and it's kind of a relief to be moving into what I think is going to be a period where I can more focus on the parts that I really love so deeply and not be worried about, I don't know how, what a terrible capitalist I am. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, it's interesting in our capitalist society, you know, we don't talk about the, we're taught, you know, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and get to work and start your own business. And we don't really, it's not really represented how painful it is actually to be a small business owner in a cap in a, such an incredibly capitalist ruthlessly capitalist society and like you know when you don't see it it's very difficult to understand that like going into it that that's how it can feel and how I don't know how doing something that you love can actually be incredibly painful I don't we don't ever really talk about that as a society yeah and it's tough yeah. because it can like it can really ruin you it well for me I'll speak for myself it can really like I don't want to say ruin, but it can really complicate your relationship with your passion, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, Bobby, you do what you love. How do you well, feel? I, I, to tell you the truth, what I'm thinking about is artists. You know, anybody that's an artist, when you start to try to sell your art, it, it's, it's, it, they don't cohabitate well. It kind of uh, takes something away from your, um, the meaning behind what you're doing. And I noticed, Monica, in some of the reading um, that I read about you, some of the articles, that you've always considered your work meaningful and filled with love. Is is that how you like to say it? It is. Yeah. Yeah, that's really so important to me. Yeah. So what happens when all of a sudden we have, um, you have to worry about paying bills and we have to worry about, um, you know, how to make enough profit, you know, and then all of a sudden how, what, how, what's the meaning shifts? So, right. So tell us more. Your business was in Wisconsin and it mm-hmm. was a, and tell us the name. The name of the business was and still is Curtis and Cake. Um, there's a whole story behind that name. And this kind of gets to what you were just saying about, you know, my, my need to just kind of build that, that meaning in, in every way. So it's always about this kind of deep, textured description for me and I don't know that that bumps up against that that capitalist urge too right because we don't have time like just please sell me the cake and let's move on yes. yeah <laughs> um yeah but yeah. I I don't know I just I I think the storytelling is just such a an important part of it for for me anyway um so yeah the cake part I guess is is pretty obvious, but the Curtis came from, um, well, it, it came from, let me, let me just go back for a minute. My mom was an extraordinary hostess and she used to throw, um, 
really these great house parties. And so I do have this really lovely memory of sitting on the steps as a kid in our house during one of these parties and just munching on this this slice of a really hunk because the cake was so saturated with rum that it wouldn't really make a, a clean slice. But just eating this rum cake, sitting on the stairs and, and watching the grown folks dance to Curtis Mayfield. So, that, you know, that's where the, the Curtis comes from. Ah. Um, and it's just this kind of nice reminder of, of that memory for me and just of that idea that the the cake is it's never just the cake. It's, you know, it's the music, it's the people, it's the relationship. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean... It's it is such a rich thing, and it, it's interesting when you're talking about just like uh, trying knowing how much meaning your own work has to you, and then trying to like convey it in a way where there's that like appropriate amount of time between you know what I mean, like especially with food, um, being able to tell people like, hey, this is my inspiration, this is what it's about. When you said, hey, I just want the cake, you know, as like as the customer, but like you don't want to just give them the cake. So it's like finding the like line between being able to be your authentic self and and how do you like allow people to really see that and how much does it matter that they see that? Some people will see it more than others. It's like such an interesting kind of balance of that. So how yeah. did you get into to making cakes? How did that journey begin for you? Um well, yeah, it's First, I just have to say, you know, already I think you're really such a, a lovely interviewer and conversationalist. Oh, um, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I want to respond to, I, you know, I, I think what you were saying, the comments, it, I, I thought that was just such an interesting part of having, especially a food business, especially one where I'm investing so much power. It is, there's, it's a tension, but it's also this kind of dance to find that balance, right? Yeah. How much of the story do you tell? Um, you know, and, and learning to be sensitive to other people's needs, because really sometimes they really just need the cake. Um, but also, you know, listening to your own needs and your own, um, I don't know what the, the things that are, that are lighting you up. And for me, I, I always wanted to focus more on the story part. (laughs) Totally. Um, And, and so the, the dance kind of started twirling in that direction. But, um, but yeah, I, I started making them because I was at a super stressful job in Chicago. Um, you know, I, I went to grad school. I, I was a very sort of dutiful, good student, Virgo person <laughs> for a really long time. Yeah. And I got that PhD, you know, and I... I probably was among the the last cohort of graduate students who really felt that they were promised like a certain thing, tenure, and you know there were just certain assurances, um, and you know of course that all started blowing up in in real time. Um, but yeah, I did land this this big job um, directing uh, the Center for Black Music Research, which was. Um, still is an extraordinary collection, but was this really unique um, confluence of of scholars and archival resources and all this stuff. Um, And I just went there believing that that I was going to really actively help change the world from my little corner of Chicago. 
Um, but institutional politics got in the way and I got stressed out. So started baking <laughs> like so many people do just to kind of manage the stress. Okay. And um, I just fell in love first with just the immediacy. You know, mm. it's just such a joyful thing and you can just connect with people and you make them happy right away as opposed to like, you know, writing an article that totally. some people will read a year later and I don't That's know. That's very interesting. That point is very interesting about like your previous kind of career path and then that's that's a long game that's such a long game and 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 also so frustrating because sometimes you never get a chance to see the ways in which you are able to impact someone and so with like something like baking I mean that's that that kind of gratification I mean I can relate to that so much in terms of my own cooking and my own love of of professional cooking is like that thing when you see somebody be like oh my god it's so soul satisfying in a way that almost nothing else is right but I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt, but I want to hear more about, about how you got to, to cakes. So you were oh, doing that's... it as a way to kind of de-stress, de-stress from your uh, your past profession and your career trajectory. And then how did it how did it turn from a passion into a, a job? I, I still don't know. Um, <laughs> I, it just kind of, it just kind of evolved. Um, I was baking more and more to the point that I think it was starting to get on my colleagues' nerves. Um, <laughs> just, you know, bringing a cake in or two every week. Um, yep. <laughs> I don't know. We needed sugar. <laughs> <That's> totally. <laughs> I hear that. And I, a, a dear friend and colleague of mine asked me to make uh, a special birthday cake for her son. And I got overly ambitious, as I am want to do, and I tried to make this sort of two-tier fondant-covered sort of character cake for this kid. And I, I could tell you all the many, many ways that I really messed that cake up. Um, I'll spare the details, but you know that... Um, that scene in Close Encounters where Richard Dreyfus is sitting at the table with the mashed potatoes and uh-huh. like trying to make the, the yeah cake make the mountain thing yeah. ended up looking like this sort of chocolate mountain of I don't know mashed potato mush. It was oh my gosh. guess oh what God. kids loved it. They didn't care. I bet that's hilarious. <laughs> is that feeling when you start? I had the same thing happen the other day with a cake actually, and it turned out fine. But I was making like an olive oil cake for a photo shoot. And it was supposed to be like this Aperol spritz cake. And my friend has um, this saying that really stuck with me. At first, I found it to be incredibly annoying, but it really stays with me. It's, he says, the hurrier I go, the behinder I get. And so <laughs> that is what happened to me the other day. And I was doing the same. <laughs> I took the cake out of the pan too early. So part of it stuck. Then I'm like mushing it together. I'm like pouring <laughs> syrup on top. Then I'm like jamming like some kind of like weird decorations into in the end it turned out fine but i that i so relate to that feeling of being like oh yeah. get back in here yeah no. because yeah. baking is a process it is it yeah. is yeah and that's that's a beautiful thing right yeah. once you finally sort of catch on yeah, yeah. it's not yeah. about perfection it's all about the process of making it and everything that it gives to you and what you imbue into it what i heard you say before is that yeah. people may not know what we put into what we make but we know. Yeah. I think that's, that's what really matters. That's very beautiful, Bobby. 
It's yeah. true. And that, that makes <laughs> it, it hard though, too. That makes it hard. And especially as a business owner, I think going back to that, well, that point, it's, it, that's what makes it hard. And I think that's for me, at least where the switch was in my head with like doing what you love is that you do know what goes into it. You know, like the pain that went into it, why you might have begun this business or begun doing this for people you know like you know the daily struggles that you might have that you're pouring into it or like the rent that maybe like can't be paid or the person that quit and yelled at you or whatever you know and all this stuff and then you deliver them the food or the cake and they're like either excited or whatever they're like kind of just like you know not too excited or they don't like it or they love it and like that feeling of like you'll never know what I put into this so you could enjoy it. And it's interesting. I think we have to, well, one thing that I've kind of learned and I'm still not great at it, but is trying to like compartmentalize that, that the reaction doesn't have to define the process for us. You know what I mean? In a lot of things, not just in professional cooking, but in like life, like the, (laughs) like people's reaction to what we put out doesn't define like, our our intention you know right that's That's right that's another and this is the thing (laughs) this is the beautiful thing about cake right i mean all the life lessons are there (laughs) totally i really think it's true absolutely so did you you were mentioning that your mom threw amazing house parties um and was your mom also a cook like did she did she like to bake cake where did this you know and what was it like growing up I know that you mentioned your pre-interview that you guys were so close and she was your person and I'm just curious to know like the food relationship there and if she helped guide you in this way yeah um she definitely did um she was really the sort of the the motivation the inspiration behind um kind of more formally starting the business um, and there was a lot about our shared relationship around food that I that I wanted to communicate through Curtis and Cake. Um, so a lot of what I understood as the the specialness of what I was doing. I mean, not like what I was doing, but the specialness of of those kinds of building those kinds of relationships through the medium of cake came from things that I did with with my mom. Um, early on, and we all were always up to some kind of project. So it's hard to say, like, yes, we were bakers, or I learned how to make X, Y, and Z at her side. It was a little more sort of scattered, and I don't know, sometimes frantic than that. We we're always trying something new, and sometimes it was more like, well, let's make wreaths this year you know, for, for the neighbors instead of cookies, but it was always some sort of hospitality oriented project. Um, you know, let's, let's learn how to make jelly this year. Let's, um, you know, let's make chocolate candy. So it was always something different, but it was, it was fun. It was quality time with her. Um, and I, the, the thing I learned from it was not so much how to like make the perfect, you know, whatever, but more just, um, here's, here's just this really lovely, fun way to, I don't know, show people you love them or to, you know, to care for folks. Yeah. Well, hospitality, as you mentioned. That's it. Yeah. 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 That's an incredible thing to, to absorb. And so your mother unfortunately passed away this past year. Um, and I'm so sorry to hear that. It's it's such a devastating loss and, um, 
can you just tell us a little bit about kind of how that experience was for you in terms of what a like what a hectic time obviously that loss is so profound and you had mentioned that you had were going through so many other transitions personally and also on you know a national level with like so much grief happening over the summer with you know violence and murder of black people in this country by the police and there's been there was such a intense time for you can you just talk a little bit about what this this past year has been like in in regards to some of that stuff but also her passing mm, sure it um it was it was just a lot. It was just too much. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I still don't feel like I know how to articulate that period. Um, what how that how it happened. I, I don't know how to how to talk about it. Well, um, but I can say that I can I can say that it it just was it was just like such a <laughs> it was just heartbreaking um, and and made so much more so because of everything that was going on around me at at the time it it would have been enough just to to deal with my mom's passing that would have been enough but i i think there was just this way that um you know for for better and worse this thing that kind of made it much much more difficult but ultimately better for me um in in a weird way was that i there was no closing off you know the wound was just like made to stay fresh because there was so much to grieve this past spring um, on so many levels. Um, so for me, just personally and as an individual, and normally that's just such a private, um, it's just such an individual private thing, you know, the way you grieve for your person. <laughs> um, but it always had this collective element um, because of everything that was happening with COVID and because of everything that was happening with Ahmaud Arbery, with Breonna Taylor, with uh, George Floyd, with, you know, the the names just kept coming. It just kept happening. Um, so there kind of wasn't this healing and I was sort of forced. <laughs> um, now I could say gifted, but then it did not feel that way. Um, to to kind of just sit with this sort of open gaping wound um and just kind of be with it yeah that is one of the things about grief that they don't tell you and especially mounting grief and it's so awful that it so often happens that things collide in this way where it you know you have a loss and then you have another loss and then you have things that are happening outside of your control in your personal life that are horrible and difficult and painful and mind-bending in their injustice uh and you know I can just speak from the times that I've had that have felt similarly that you sit and you almost freeze and you're like I don't understand how life works like this because nobody ever really tells you that life works like this we know people die we know that horrible things happen in the world but sometimes like it's enough to like numb you 
and and drop your jaw to the ground and I think it really is right. you know it's a cliche but it really is only in hindsight that you're able to take a look and be like wow when that wound was open when I was at the bottom I actually mentioned to our mutual friend Lisa Cole Broland uh, in an interview once that she was asking you know kind of a similar question what do you what did you learn from your lowest time and I was like you know in hindsight I learned there's something about being down there at the very bottom that you never wish to go there. And while you're there, you're never like, oh, I think I'd like to stay longer here. But like- And you don't think you can survive it either when you're in it. Right. right. But, in, but in retrospect, man, what a what an interesting underworld there is there to like poke around at. Then when you think back at it, you're like, oh, it's like almost being at the bottom of the deep sea. And you're like, oh, look, there was those weird neon glowing fish. <laughs> And I don't know if anyone else has ever seen those, but I have. And, you know, I have in my memory that bizarre things exist I thought I could never see or my mind couldn't wrap itself around. And when you come back up, I don't know, it's a tool. And it's not a tool you'd ask for, but I think it still is. Personally, I think it still is a tool. Do you feel that way at all? It is. It's essential, right? Um, I I feel, yeah, I, I, I love the way you put that. Um, it does feel... And, and and I know we're not the only ones that have, have made that sort of comparison with the sea or the ocean or, you know, with with grief, because it, it is you're you're kind of going down to this this place and you feel like you have had all the air knocked out of you and you feel like like you can't breathe, you know, like like you said, Bobby, like you just you don't think you're going to survive it. But but yet, like with each minute, you're like, but I am somehow still here. I don't understand how, I don't know how I can even, like, how do I exist without this person? Like, how, how can I be here still? But you are. And, and yeah, I guess if you um, can have a kind of curiosity, I don't even want to say bravery, but just some kind of curiosity about what is, what's down there, what those creatures are, are doing and what they look like. Um, well, yeah. they, that's what faith is. You know, faith is being able to be in that moment um, of the darkest time and have what you call curiosity for the next breath and the next moment and the next moment. And that's how we get through. But what you said about how do I ever learn to live with this? I think that we live with grief our whole life and we don't have to figure it out all at once. And it's continually evolving. You know, the, the understanding of of what we miss in our life and what we long for in our life and what we lost in our life, but we still have, you know, or we still, we begin to find it again in a new way. Right. Right. Yeah. That's so important. It is always Mm -hmm. changing, isn't it? Yes, it really is. So it sounds like you had a convergence of many things happening at the same time. (laughs) Yes. All the rugs, (laughs) all the rugs are pulled. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) It's wild how it happens like that. And and not to mention Mm -hmm. that, you know, during COVID and a time when, uh, and you, I, I know Bobby specifically wanted to to talk to you about some points about this, but um, when like the the little the little thing that we have, most of us, some of us, to to hold on to, are the rituals surrounding loss and death, right? Like totally. being with people and being and you know funerals of whatever kind that is, or wakes or shivas or whatever way you know your family, your culture celebrates is important. It's like the little win, you know, and that is taken away from folks during this kind of time. It's brutal. It's like, that's unfair. 
Monica, you wrote such a beautiful piece in Unpeeled. And may I read it to our readers, Uh, to our listeners? It's so beautiful. Um, You said, my mom died in April, just a few months ago, just as everything seemed to be going wrong. And to have that happen in the midst of this pandemic, where certain modes of sharing, grieving aren't even available, has been really difficult. One of the rights of Black hospitality is the Black repast. There is just a way that family and friends remember people together through the visitation and the service, and it is totally interwoven with food. And I didn't get that food. I didn't get that fried chicken and my mom's coconut cake and the mac and cheese. And it's always something I'm thinking about, how important the food is. Food runs through all of it. With the black repast, there's going to be pound cake. There's going to be sweet potato pie, and there's going to be potato salad. That consistency, that continuity is powerful. And again, I think about the cakes as these at these times. I'm just always thinking of that. It seems strange at a time that in the days following my mom's death, I just wanted to work on a cake design. So hers was my first grief cake, actually. And I just used all sorts of kitchen things that made me feel connected to her. And I just was trying to make a tribute, a poem for her, out of this cake. It had wild rice on it and black birch, sumac seeds, and other things that would make some kind of statement about how beautiful she was. going to make me cry. <laughs> We're all crying. <laughs> We're all crying. We are. Oh, my oh, gosh. Monica, that was so beautifully said. It was. Bobby and I also cried this morning when we were talking, when Bobby read that over the phone to me this morning when oh I was actually decorating a cake, <laughs> oddly <laughs> enough. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, just in terms of the, like, traditions surrounding, like, grief, you know, that you had in your family and like what, not being able to do that. I mean, I'd love if you could talk about that a bit, but also I add on to that. Like, what did you do instead? Were you able to do something else that was, I don't know. It, um, Bobby, thank you for reading that and reminding me. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, that felt like, you know, it just felt like some like Job level stuff, man, for a minute there. <laughs> you really kind of, you know, start to wonder like, okay, okay, I, I'm good. I'm, you know, yeah. I've got some lesson material to work with. I don't need any more. Um, yeah, I missed, I missed that. And my family certainly has its version of um you know of, of all of those rituals um the the funeral the repast um and so i missed seeing my my family my extended family um and and sort of being able to celebrate my mom in that way my mom um to say she deserved that is you know such a sad understatement she minimally deserved um, the people that were important to her coming together and celebrating her in, in a kind of, uh, you know, communion in a shared space. Um, and what we had instead was, uh, a Facebook live, which is just insulting. Um, I'm already so ambivalent about that platform. Um, and it just, you know, it was just so, so dreadfully insufficient, 
Um, but the other thing about the the repast, and people much smarter than me have 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 written about it, but that's how the specific gets connected to to the collective. That's that's how you kind of tap in. Um, you know, that's that's those rituals are the 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 ways that you get connected to your your elders to a lineage. That's the way you ground, and I had to find other other ways to do that. I had to find other ways to to ground myself and and I think that's just that's where that that's where the the miracle part of that spring came in um and that's where the that gift of um just the the quiet of um social distancing and the quarantining um and and kind of everyone you know being required to to slow down um that was such a a gift for me because i was able to take um i just took these walks i just took walks <laughs> and um and because i was there there was there was nowhere to be and i was at sort of the bottom of that sea anyway so i was not making any effort or striving in any way to be anywhere else um and i was just i i was just able to be on such intimate terms with the with spring happening and just seeing it happen like day to day and and being a feeling like i was a part of that and feeling right sized in that cycle was just such a it was just such a profound miracle. <laughs> it was mm. really like I'm not overstating it. Um, okay. It was the way to to get through mm. fertility. Spring. Yeah, spring is an interesting time because I think that yeah. like people think of it because of the colors and because of the flowers and because of the baby animals and the coming back from the winter. It is a beautiful time in a way, but it's also a very not intense in time. <laughs> I, what? Not in Wisconsin. Oh, true. <laughs> in New York either. But um, it's also like I've always found spring to be a very intense time. Like the breaking out of like the winter while it's like great. But there's for me at least I've always felt the energy in spring and not intense negatively, just intense. Like it just something about spring. It's like, I, you know, to use the metaphor or the imagery of like a chick breaking out of its shell like that's cute, but it's also hard. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's like sweaty sh- work. It's sweaty work. It's hard. It's like sharp edges. You know, you're like mm-hmm. in this shell, and then all of a sudden you're in the world again, and it's kind and of. And then, like, I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh but, no, please. But, you know, one of the great things Wisconsin gave to me was the the state fair, the county fair, um, which I had never experienced before. So I have seen these chicks now. <laughs> the city girl has seen the chicks, and I love how they like they do all of that work and you're right it's so much work and there are all these sharp edges but they make it out and they immediately have to take a nap yeah totally immediately exactly that fall asleep spring feels like <laughs> well elizabeth lesser said it very well in her book broken open one of my favorite books and it's just that breaking open and that's what i imagine when you say that sorry what spring is about breaking open and it's painful and it's hard and it's you release a lot to make room for new yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, go ahead, Bobby. No, I was just, I, I was so interested in something, um, just to shift a little bit gears. 
when you talk about black hospitality, I was just so interested and I want to hear more about that. And I understand that it's something you're going to be writing about. I am. (laughs) I did start writing in earnest and start really thinking about that because I, I missed certain manifestations of it. Um, you know, after, after my mom passed and was just trying to think about, um, what it is that just seems qualitatively different to me. Why have that descriptor? Um, and I, 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 I think there's, I want to, I want to write something that is, that is overlapping with. So I, I want to write something that's like recognizable as a part of this sort of larger discourse around the hospitality industry, but that is also veering from it and like sort of going in this more like quotidian, like intimate direction um, that points out just these lovely opportunities that we have. Um, in these moments every day. And I think this is just this art, this, this talent that black women have, um, for making, making you feel welcome. Um, it's not, I trying to think like the word that's not, um, transactional and it's not even, um, reciprocal in that way. It really is coming from this deep understanding of the mutuality of, of the connection of in, in doing for you, um, I'm doing for myself and others and that you'll pay that forward. Um, so there's something about that, that I really do want to want to capture. I think that's Um, beautiful. That's beautiful. I think that a lot of white people in this country don't have a great sense of community anymore. I think that like the sense of community is often lost amongst white folks in this country. I can just, that's my observation. Do you think that for the black community that that's different and that that is a reason for why black hospitality amongst like black women is more, or like how you're describing a more kind of intimate non-transactional thing because the sense of community is greater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, for sure. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. I think our, our, sort of historical circumstances yeah. <laughs> um, in, in this country. Yeah. So we can take the, that long view um, has kind of necessitated that, that viewpoint, but it is one that we should all always already have. I mean, we, we are connected. That is, that is the fact. So in spite of the sort of, you know, the, the efforts of, of sort of deep privatization and, you know, all of those stories around, like you were saying earlier, you know, the, the bootstrap stories. I mean, there is that connection to um, a certain kind of, a certain brand of capitalism too. Um, that, that yes, we can, we can afford you hospitality um, for a price. Or we can afford you hospitality because we have a certain kind of house. Um, there's this... Um, now, how would I describe him? This theorist named Fred Moten, who I think is one of the most brilliant people alive, but he was talking about his grandmother and, you know, that that idea of hospitality is, is the, the host is able to be hospitable, hospitable because of, of what he owns. 
And Fred Moten was saying, you know, my grandmother, I don't know if she ever owned a house. Um, she lost many houses. I don't know if she owned one, but she knew how to share one. And I think that's Mm. such a great thing to to keep in mind. How do you share a house even when you don't feel like you have one or have the the trappings for the magazine version? Absolutely. Well, I think it's something that very much comes from within and it's very learned. And I think that like, like you're, you know, we're kind of circling around talking about uh, capitalism in this country and the ideal of uh, the idea of individualism. uh, And I, you know, capitalism particularly in regards to hospitality and how it's now bought and sold. And, um, you know, it's really eroded what is, uh, in essence, one of the few things that we kind of have, I don't know, that are just human, that you can always invite someone to your house for a glass of, a cup of tea. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't always have to be this, like, grand gesture. It doesn't have to include anything specific other than, you know, being heartfelt. And... It is something that I think as we progress in society and definitely like as individualism and many becomes more important and prevalent and it's it's lost. And um, right. it's like also just kind of not part of our, I don't know. It's not, I, I love what you're saying. And I, and I, you know, think of my own grandfather a bit who like didn't have, you know, grew up with he definitely grew up with no money in the depression and then even when they were older grandparents age they still didn't really have anything you know and this is a guy who would pick dandelions from the driveway and eat them and and stuff like that so uh, but he would he would had such a big heart and he would bring those same picked dandelions to the neighbors you know what I mean and like it didn't matter that there wasn't something fancy it was like always a sense of wanting to share and uh I think that's a beautiful a beautiful sentiment for sure yeah yeah. yeah, I love that. The dandelions are supposed to be good for you. I, I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't eat them, but I. <laughs> but one of my one of my kind of bucket list things is to learn how to forage and you know recognize um, different plants and things like that. So yeah, I I, I hear that there is something about dandelions yeah. that's nutritious. Totally, I'll find out one day. <laughs> but yeah, I think that how do you um, how can how can we hold an attitude of of invitation of inviting mm-hmm. in um wherever wherever we are and you know i want to try to think about ways that that is a uh, is extra human the, the way to put that i mean mm-hmm. i think it's a human thing yeah. and i think the connection but i think we have to think about it in a bigger sense something that we that we can cultivate between us but also across um I don't know, across, across species. I mean, totally. We are guests yes. in a larger sense. Um, that's very well. true. Yeah. That's a very, um, very good point. So I don't know. It's, it's pretty ambitious and, and we'll see how it goes, but yeah, there's definitely a poetics around hospitality that I'm at least interested in and, and want to try to speak to. Yeah. That's really beautiful. I'm curious. I'm curious about a lot of things. I wish we had like three more hours. <laughs> but one thing that I kind of want to talk about, um, and it kind of touches on some of the stuff we were talking about in the beginning with your passion and being your work and stuff like that. But um, I was thinking about how when somebody orders a cake, it's often because they want it to represent their personality or their occasion or their, 
you know, they wanted to define them or speak to them in some way. So how do you balance that or how did you balance it or how do you think about it in the future in terms of it communicating like your feelings and your vision and your joy and pain and all of those things that are important to you and in, in, in your work um, with folks who are looking to have you kind of represent them? Like, how does that work for you? Oh, my gosh, that that is like the cake designers sort of <laughs> whole um, whole issue right there. You sum that up really well. Um, it, it like everything else, it was a, a real process for me. Um, I. You know, I, I I want for better or worse. I'm I'm a big sort of pleaser, and you know I want people to be happy. I I want to, you know, give them the thing that that they want. But I found that sometimes you know you have to have that conversation to kind of help help them r- really, you know, massage their vision of of what what their cake, you know, can and and maybe should be. So I was always happy to put that that time in, but some people in the end they still just want you know they want um, what's that the like a Pinterest cake that's what I right. always call you know sure they bring you the picture it's trending um, they want you to reproduce this thing so getting the courage to kind of develop my language in a way that made sure up front that I was mostly bringing people that wanted to have that conversation with me Mm. Um, definitely took a while but I was starting you know at like in 2019 the end of 2019 starting to really find um, find that language and find my people Mm. and 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 for the most part by then you know people were kind of saying I love your style um, here are some of the design elements or here's, you know, the setting for this occasion um, and kind yeah. of just let me go. And that was ideal. Yes, that is <laughs> amazing that. when you can find that. That's incredible. Loved um, it. I'm also curious about, so Bob, as Bobby was mentioning before, the in the interview you did in Unpeeled, and you're talking about the first grief cake you made for your mom. I'm just curious, what did you, um, what did you do with it? What did you, what happened? What was the fate of the cake? Like, was it for you and your family? Like, what happened to it? So, um, one of the, one of the tensions that has been real for me with this, with this cake business, <laughs> I mean that in, in the larger sense, is between the eating cakes and the designed cakes. Mm. Um, so the, the, the eating cakes sort of seem to have this their own sort of stories and contexts um, around the ingredients, around my relationships. If I'm lucky enough with you know the people that grew some of that stuff, mm. around uh, preserving traditions, um, you know the flavor profiles create this whole story. But a lot of times the cake, you know, it looks like a like a frosted homemade cake, so. Saying that to say that the cake that I designed for my mom was a cake dummy. So it had, um, you know, cake forms um, in, inside it. And it was, the, the designing was the important process for me at the time. Totally. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. So we did not eat that. Yeah. <laughs> from, from what we read, you went on to make some other grief cakes. Is that I did. True? I yeah. did. And I that? missed that work and I'm, I'll, I'll be happy to kind of get back to some of that. Um, it's really, it's meaningful for me. Um, but yeah, I made, um, one, I made one for Ahmad Arbery, um, all of these instances uh, break my heart. I, you know, the words are just so insufficient. Um, but there was something about um, this, his, the story, how he was murdered, um, that just st- struck me in this way um, because I um, was running a lot. Um, I am a, am a runner as well, and. Because when I, when I run, I am, you know, I'm always aware of myself as a, a black body in an environment that feels in some ways unsafe. I'm always thinking about that and about, you know, I wrote a little piece about it, like the, the ghosts of runaways. I mean, it's always in the back of your head, but you are willing to manage that um, anxiety because, you know, on the trail in the woods and you're running, that is, that is also where you feel um, in right relationship with um, the world. So you got to do it. Um, But yeah, his murder really struck me in a kind of way. And I wanted to design a cake for, for him that featured elements of things that I see on my runs that are magical. Um, so there's just like little, I don't know, little bits of sugar and sprinkle that I treated a certain way to look like pebbles shining in a creek. And um, there was some, um, you know, different mushrooms and um, like shelf mushrooms there. Um so not, you know, not traditional cake decorating stuff, but I sort of tried to um, push on, on some of those connections. But also because, you know, the cake is, again, just such a great symbol. Um, it represents life, and that's what we eat when we're celebrating, you know, another year of life. That's what we eat when we are with our families and, and connecting in the ways that we're all supposed to be connecting. Um, those rituals are rituals that, you know, his his family's not going to get to have, that he's not going to get to have. Um, so in that way, I think the cake seemed like such a, you know, great way to connect in a more meaningful way to the fact that this person um, is not here anymore. This person was stolen from us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, yeah. in talking about inherited trauma and you know it's such a real thing the actual like i mean there's been so much kind of science behind it like um in terms of you inherit the kind of trauma from generations past it's like in your in your dna actually like with holocaust survivors there's been a bunch of studies on it for instance in like you know next gen like bobby's mom uh, my grandma was a holocaust survivor and there is that kind of, what do you call it, mom? There's, is there a name for this type of the well, inherited trauma? It's kind of what you said. It's, it, it's, 
it's inherited grief. And you're right, it's in our DNA. It, it really is in the same, yeah. the, to put it in, I'm really paraphrasing here, but what from what I've read, it's almost like, you know how you sometimes have the same, okay, so my brother, I have found out I had a long lost brother. I didn't, I never knew him until my dad died, until like a couple of months after my dad died. And he's, he's amazing, but I ended up meeting him and he does the same weird hand gestures as my dad did, mm. right? So like, it's the same thing. It's like that kind of like trauma and terror and pain that like happens to our ancestors. I feel like similarly to like doing the same hand gesture to someone who you never knew, but you were related to, like it's deeply within the fabric of who you are in yourselves, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't know. It's just such a profound and such a, just it's sad. It's terrible, but it's also part of who, we are and how we deal with it and how we go forward as as you know people who we are now it's just an interesting thing it's also part of our tapestry it's not just a bad thing it's just it just is right that's a good way of putting it part of the tapestry but it is uh it's really intense so monica we always ask everyone at the end kind of as we're nearing the end of the show um, if you could have given yourself kind of at the beginning of this grieving experience, um, a bit of advice, what would that, you know, like knowing what you know now and what you've been through, like, what would that, what would that advice be to your previous self? Well, (laughs) I, um, I, I knew that you asked this question <laughs> and I don't know. I tried to not, you know, sort of practice something in my head and I was going to surprise myself. Like, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what I say. <laughs> I'm trying to do that more, um, you know, not, not, not be so attached to certain um, <laughs> outcomes, just kind of letting, letting it go. Um, I, but, but I, but I don't, I'm really proud of how I handled all of that. Um, it was not always pretty, um, as, as my, my husband would (laughs) attest, it was not, but I, um, I, I think I did a good job of sitting with it, of not repressing, not acting out, (laughs) um, you know, just, um, kind of being, still and quiet and and letting all of that experience sort of guide me to a deeper understanding of myself. I think now I I I just have this sense that that you can be happy, like that's a thing, happiness, and I know mm. that's a thing that we all sort of go towards. Um but what I feel more often, more times than not now is is joy, which I think always has a bit of grief in it. I think there's always that texture. Um, so just learning how to how to be with it and, and know that, I don't know, that, that kind of makes the wholeness. So I, I think I did a good job with that. So I, I might remind myself to breathe and be patient. <laughs> mm, um, yeah. But mostly, mostly I would just say, good job, kid. You got this. I love you. Mm. that's great that's beautiful and I love like the sentiment of that with joy there's always there's always some pain you know and I don't know what you think about that but I feel like 
I feel like when I think about that statement, that it's like when you're really feeling joy, like real joy and not just happiness, you're like letting go and you're so you're vulnerable in joy. Yes. And I think it's like those moments you realize that like, oh my God, I'm really let go. I'm free right now. And that means that this feeling will go away at some point or all the things that I'm feeling really joyful about right now are temporary. And I don't know, like, is that what that feeling is for you at all? It It is. Now, I hate to say that I cannot remember who this guy was or where I heard this thing, but someone, probably in another podcast, <laughs> was talking about this favorite glass that he had and how it brings him so much joy. And part of why it brings him joy is because in his mind, he knows it's already broken. Oh. Um, so it helps mm. him, you know, just appreciate and, and kind of be there each time he's using the glass. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's something uh, about the joy is, is sort of recognizing. I mean, and that's the thing about the cake, too. It's that ephemerality. Mm-hmm. It's already it's eaten. Perfect. I've been reading this poem to my clients all week, and it's a little piece of a Mary Oliver poem, very short poem, actually. And it says, we shake with joy. We shake with joy. We shake with grief. What a time they have, these two, housed as they are in the same body. Mm. That Mary. (laughs) She's good. Every time, that one. Oh yeah. my gosh. Nothing but the hits with Mary Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh man. Monica, this was Thank a really beautiful that. conversation. It was really nice. And I know like I mean, it's always such a big ask to have people share their stories about grief. And, you know, it hasn't been so long since your mom has passed away and since all this kind of really traumatic time for you has happened. So thank you for, you know, going there with us so shortly after, especially at such a it's such a generous thing to do and we really appreciate it so much. I appreciate you all and the yeah. space that you create with this um, podcast. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Yeah. Thank you for, for being on. This was really a beautiful, beautiful talk and your work is beautiful and you're a wonderful person. So we were so happy to have you. <laughs> thank thank you. you so much. Yeah. And good luck with your writing and your new home. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. And, and yay, Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> right? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. There okay, is a reason we'll talk- for joy. Absolutely. Yeah. There you go. All right, Monica, it's great to talk to you. We'll talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. Bye. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to cheeselandia.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. 
We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.